Our text this evening for the scripture reading is going to be found in Psalm 37. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. Psalm 37, 1 through 13. The message this evening is the power of meekness. In Psalm 37, verse 1, it says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. This concludes the reading of God's word. Father, we pray that you will give us, give Mr. Bassett, what is needed to proclaim the truths from your word. May we listen not only our ears, but also with our hearts. In our Savior's name we pray, amen. One of the more challenging and emotional experiences that we face in life is walking into a job interview. As we walk into the interview, and I'm sure many of us have done this, we have a lot of things that go through our mind as we're about to sit down. We think, are we wearing the proper outfit for the job that's suited? Do we maintain eye contact with the person we're speaking to? How firm is our handshake? How well have we prepared our resume? How many other people have applied for this job and have sat down and interviewed for this job before I have? Do I carry myself with confidence? Most interviews come to a point where after those questions have been asked and you've answered a couple questions, they come down to two very difficult questions that were always asked. The first is, what is your greatest strength? And the second is, what, of your, what is your greatest weakness? So our goal in the interview process is we want to impress. So we have to think of these highly articulate answers. We have to dig real deep and search for something that nobody has ever said. We want to impress the individual. So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this evening, but how many of us <coughs> ever in a job interview have ever said that my greatest attribute and my greatest strength is that I'm meek? That during times of great difficulty, that you show forth gentleness and control. How many of you actually have meekness listed on your resume as one of your strongest assets? 
And I would assume, and this would include myself as well, is that these types of things have never been put on our resume. So the question is, is what is it about meekness that causes people to either laugh or to roll their eyes? How often do we find our children seeking out role models that show us what meekness and kindness is? Or do we find various aspects of pride more attractive to emulate? What comes to mind when someone thinks of a person who is meek? How would you describe that person? What characteristics would you say this person has? I would assume most of us in here have heard the classic cliche about meekness, that meekness equals weakness. A meek person is somebody who is frail, lacks confidence, they're timid, they're passive, they're easy to take advantage of, they lack the ability to defend themselves, they are simple followers who need to be led. I think this is what the world in their mind, in our mind's eye, thinks of somebody who is meek. And a common response we hear to of the verse that says, the meek shall inherit the earth, is, yeah, six feet of it. That's the world's response to that. So the world looks for somebody who's powerful, somebody who appears to be confident, somebody who's famous, somebody who's strong, somebody who's not to be messed around with. So in our passage this evening in Psalm 37, we see it's a rare occasion where the Old Testament can shed light on New Testament principles. Generally, what we see here is the New Testament adds and clarifies and brings more depth to Old Testament passages. But we see this verse here again in Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus said in the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus didn't expound upon this teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, but it is exactly what Psalm 37 is talking about. Psalm 37, verse 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So what we see here this evening is Psalm 37 can be seen as an exposition of the third beatitude. So meekness defined. First of all, let's start out with what it's not. Meekness is not weakness. A meek person does not run away from conflict. Meekness is not frailty. A meek person is not overcome by the world simply because they are not strong enough to fight back. A meek person is not a doormat that everyone steps on or to wipe their feet. That's not what meekness is. Meekness, according to the scripture, is somebody who is gentle, humble, and considerate. Not being overly impressed with themselves, especially during times of great difficulty, when emotions are running high. Meekness is a grace whereby the Spirit of God we are enabled to control and we're able to moderate our passions. So a meek person remains calm. They remain at peace. They do not react out of raw emotion. They have concern for others. They don't seek after their own self-interests. A meek person is secure in who they are in Christ. They have no need to brag. No desire to tell everyone how good they are at something. No desire to be the dominant person in the room. No desire to tell everybody how they've just been wronged. No desire to take joy in the sufferings of others, even when the person who's suffering deserves it. Meekness endures injustices. It forgives others when wronged. It responds to evil with good. And very importantly, 
It is the best way to conquer and to melt the hearts of your enemies. So an example of meekness that we're going to take a look at this evening is with Moses. And if you turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 12, we're going to cover, cover Numbers 12, the first 13 verses here. And as you're turning, can you think of a time when you were accused of something that you did not do, when you were falsely accused, or when somebody or a group of people told a lie about you in order to damage your reputation, or when somebody schemed against you to get ahead of you? Do you remember how you reacted? What words came out of your mouth when you heard this? Did you remain control of yourself? Or did your anger and your pride get the best of you? Now this is the same type of scenario Moses is facing here in Numbers chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Miriam and Aaron <clears throat> spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he, referring to Moses, had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Now it's interesting. No matter where we find ourselves in life, we will always face opposition when we're living according to God's will. Here with Moses, we see an internal struggle with his family. Aaron, Moses' brother, was a high priest and supreme religious leader. Miriam, Moses' sister, was a prophetess and thus head of the spirit-filled women. Both held high-ranking positions. Both were given great responsibility for the children of Israel, yet they were not content with what the Lord had given them. This was the root cause of the struggle we're going to see. Now we see here that Miriam leads the way, and she tries to convince Aaron to rise up against Moses. In verse 1 here, it says the Hebrew word to speak, it's in the feminine. So it places the emphasis upon Miriam. And normally this word is used with God when God's going to give some type of declaration, but here it's focused on Miriam. It's indicating that something out of the ordinary is about to happen. Miriam is about to step out of line and convince her brother Aaron to follow along with her plan. They were unable to find any true accusations against Moses, so they seek to bring disgrace upon him by using Moses' wife as bait. So what we see here in the context is Moses has married a foreigner. Miriam used this as a platform to build her case against him. Now look at verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken also through us? And it says, and the Lord heard it. So Miriam is attempting to build up resentment and anger by asking, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Miriam and Aaron build their case against Moses based upon half-truths. Yes, they could prophesy. Yes, the Lord had placed them in positions. But this wasn't the real issue. The real issue was Moses was the only one who was divinely appointed to be ruler over Israel, not Miriam or Aaron. This was the true agenda behind their plan. Her complaint against Moses' wife was about her ethnicity. But this wasn't the real reason. She was jealous over Moses' position. So Miriam and Aaron bring up allegations against Moses based upon half-truths by creating a false problem to cover their agenda. Their plan was to remove Moses out of his position and to claim it for themselves. It was about power. It was about jealousy. And we see here, sadly, this attack came from within Moses' 
family. This wasn't a friend. This wasn't a colleague at work. This was somebody in his immediate family, which makes it even harder to bear. So now notice the next verse, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were over the face of the earth. Now the point that we're seeing here, and this is being emphasized at the beginning of this narrative, because it wants to show that Moses' meekness is going to carry him through this entire process. Moses' ability to remain calm and peaceful when wronged. These were his own siblings. They were scheming against him. They were openly rebelling against the Lord. And many people would think Moses would be justified to react. Moses would be justified to take the matter into his own hands and to defend himself how he sees fit. Even so, he remains silent. It is one thing to cry out to the Lord with all your might and to cast your cares upon him. This is commanded of us in Scripture, but it is another thing to complain to God to try to justify yourself why you want to take action against somebody else, why you want to go contrary to the moral will of God that he has laid out for us. When we allow our emotions to get the best of us, we lose confidence in God's providence. We seek instant revenge and self-justification. Simply put, we compromise and we fall into sin, either physically, verbally, or even more dangerously, silently within our own hearts where nobody can see it. Here we see Moses demonstrating meekness. He remains humble, calm, in control of himself, but better yet, as we're going to see as the narrative unfolds, he waits for the Lord to deal with the matter. When we are wronged, when we're hurt, when we're taken advantage of, what is our normal response? What do we normally do? What do we normally see ourselves doing? We become ruled and we become controlled by our anger and we become carried away by our feelings. Our frustrations boil over. Often we do not think that God has seen what takes place or, okay, we know that God saw it, but God's not going to do anything about it, so we think we have to take the initiative from our own reasoning process and try to justify what had just taken place. We take the matter into our own hands. We act out of emotion and not out of self-control. And we want to make an example of the person who wronged us to show everybody around us that we're not somebody to be messed with. These are common responses to when we are wronged. Now, verses 4 through 9. The Lord deals with Aaron and Miriam himself. Let's look at verse 4. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against Moses, my, or my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So out of jealousy and envy, Miriam and Aaron had forgotten the commandments of the Lord. The Lord calls them to the tent, brings them back into his presence. 
The Lord himself handles the problems and dismisses the charges that Miriam and Aaron had brought up against Moses without Moses having to say a word. He didn't react. He allowed the Lord to take care of the circumstances. Now a question might come to mind. Does this mean we shouldn't speak up for ourselves when we're wronged? And the answer is no. We are allowed to stand up for ourselves. We are are allowed to defend ourselves against physical attacks. We're allowed to take a stance when an injustice occurs to us. But the Lord lays out the manner in which we are to conduct ourselves. The Lord tells us what we are to do and how to do it and what state of mind and how our heart is supposed to be during these times. We are to remain in submission to him even during times of high emotion and stress and not to take the matter into our own hands and not to seek out our own vengeance. Look at verses 10 through 12. The Lord is the one here who's going to administer justice. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. So interestingly, in Israel, leprosy was considered to be a punishment against God. And because of this, Miriam was now to be placed outside of the community. So we see the Lord is dealing justice to Miriam here. What is significant with leprosy is Miriam turned white like snow. Remember her accusation was against Moses' wife. Moses' wife was Cushite, meaning she was darker complected. Miriam being turned sickly white could have been a punishment from God for objecting to Moses' wife being of another ethnicity and being of a darker color. So we notice here how the Lord is able to bring forth his justice in a much more firm and clear manner, pinpointing the exact area where the sin is far better than any of us could do. Notice Moses' response in verse 13. Moses cried out to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. Even though Moses remained calm on the outside, he also remained pure on the inside. How many of us, if we could place ourselves in Moses' shoes just for a second, would have reacted out of love and compassion and prayed for our sister after we found out what she was about to try to do to us? Or have we been wronged in the workforce? Or have we been wronged in the community? Or sometime in the past, have we had a family member who has kind of schemed against us like this? And what do we do? We end up cutting them off, and we haven't talked to them since. That wasn't the heart of Moses in this example, in this narrative. Moses kept pure on the inside. It is one thing to conduct yourself appropriately when people are looking. But on the inside... We can still sin. We can still hold that root of bitterness, and nobody can detect it. On the outside, we look just fine, but on the inside, we're boiling over. It is quite another thing to keep love in your heart when somebody is doing wrong to you, especially when you are innocent in the matter, and especially when it is a family member. Moses did not hold a grudge. He did not hold ill will towards his siblings. He did not take pleasure in her suffering. Rather, he prayed in Miriam's behalf to be relieved 
of her punishment. Look at verse 14. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought back in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought back again. So Moses' wife was insulted and despised by his brother and sister. His authority as leader was challenged. Did he fight back with anger? Did he fight back with injustice? Did he go and tell all of his friends in the camp what had happened and organized a group of people to go after Miriam and Aaron? He didn't do any of these things. This is why Moses, in verse 3, is referred to as meek. So we see here in this account in Numbers chapter 12, Moses being a, a very good picture of what we read back in Psalm 37. First thing he did, he trusted in the Lord, not in his own emotionally charged ambition. He set that aside. Second thing he did, according to Psalm 37, he delighted himself in the Lord. This is what brought him satisfaction and contentness. His relationship with the Lord grounded him. His prayer life stabilized him. So when he entered into a trial that he just did like this, he was able to remain secure and faithful to the word of God. Number three, he committed his way to the Lord. Even though he knew what the right answer was, he followed through with it 100%. A lot of times we can get the right answer, but we still do the wrong thing. We still let our emotions get the best of us. This isn't what Moses did. The fourth thing he did is he was still. The fifth thing he did is he refrained from anger. Thus God protected him and God vindicated him. Oftentimes when we're wronged, we'll have people around us ask us certain things. They come up to us and they ask, aren't you going to do something about that? You're not going to let them get away with that, are you? Let's look at an example that we have of Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, 23, I'll read you this verse. When they hurled their insults at him, referring to Christ, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So we see a picture of Moses being meek, but better yet, we see a perfect picture of meekness in Christ, in his incarnation, and the crucifixion. Meekness illustrated... The yoke of Christ, Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30. I'm going to read these three verses to you. Jesus says, Come to me, all ye who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle. And that word gentle there, the same Greek word, meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So interestingly now, Jesus decides to describe himself as meek. Could Jesus have described himself in any other way? Could Jesus have said, come to me all you who are labor and heavy laden because I am all-knowing or because I am all-powerful or because I am the creator of the universe or because I can walk on water? Jesus could have identified himself in numerous ways, but he decides to tell us that he's meek. So instead of saying these profound things that would be great to us through our eyes, his description of himself is meek and gentle, lowly in heart. So it appears then, if Jesus were to fill out a resume, hypothetically, meekness would be at the very top of his list. 
He is the ultimate supreme power over the entire universe, yet he chooses to identify himself as meek, lowly, gentle, and humble. So the yoke of Christ. We set our minds on ungodly ambitions. And then we, we complain to the Lord because we have heavy burdens on our backs. How many of the problems that we face in life are because we have foolishly walked away from the word of God and chosen to follow our own hearts? And when we do that, we turn right back around to God and we complain to him because of the situation that we're in. Selfish ambition. That is our yoke. That's not his. The lust of wealth is the yoke that we choose, not his. The desire for power, the craving for human acceptance, all of these are the yokes of our own doing, and if we put them on, they will break us. So will holding a grudge. So will retaliating out of our flesh when we're wronged. So will be the desire to seek personal vengeance, to respond to evil with evil, and to hold angry zeal within our hearts. There is more joy in meekness than there is in vengeance. There is more joy in being gentle and content with what the Lord has given us than cheating to get ahead in life. The yoke of those who seem to be succeeding because they're working evil deeds, like we see in Psalm 37, is much much heavier than the meek and humble yoke of Christ. So we have a choice. Which yoke are we going to be under? The world's or Christ's? The yoke of Christ is the yoke of self-denial, enduring trials and tribulations, persecuting, loving those who turn against you. Because we are under one side of the yoke, but Christ is on the other side, and he's bearing and walking through the trials and through the circumstances that we go through in life, he's right on the other side of us the entire step of the way. We do not suffer alone. Christ promises to be right next to us. He is there to carry the burden with us as we walk alongside of him out of humble obedience. So a meek person is in complete control of themselves when the emotions are high. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. So how do we attain peace among all of the tribulation that we face? We choose to yoke ourselves to the yoke of Christ. We err when we think that being treated unjustly is a strange thing. Our thinking is not correct when we think life should just go by as a breeze and that when somebody makes fun of us for being a Christian or when somebody tempts us or tests us because of our faith or for doing what is right, we are in grave error when we think that this is a strange thing. This should actually be normal. This should never take us by surprise, even if it's by a friend or a family member or a coworker. Either way, this is nothing new in life. We have no basis for retaliation because we have done the exact same thing to others. We've also been the person who's contributed to the problem at times. We err when we're shocked that our spouse hasn't fully lived up to Christ and how Christ loved the church. We have no basis for retaliation because we've done the same thing. Angry zeal, when you feel how angry we've been at times, 
that distorts our thinking, takes us right out of the spirit and puts us right into the flesh. It places passion and discontent that can be deeply seated so deep that we never rectify the problem. We never confront the person or try to rectify the situation. We just hold a grudge in our hearts and we carry it through the rest of our lives. We falsely think that in moments of anger that our passion serves us well, that when we're angry that we do our best thinking. But it's during these times when we conceive within our hearts the greatest sin. It is during these times when we plan our attack, either physically or emotionally, as we hold on to lifelong grudges. What Satan is trying to do during moments like this, he's trying to tempt our souls to take us out of our spiritual frame into the flesh and cause us to become reactionary. Remember the example of Job. At the end of chapter 2, after all of those things happened to him, what does it say? In all of this, Job sinned not. In moments like these, the key victory is not to sin. It's to remain meek and humble. A meek person is a calm person. They're at peace. They don't react out of raw emotion. They're concerned for others. They don't seek their own selfish ambitions out on other people. So in concluding this evening, Jesus also said in John 16, 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How has Christ overcome the world? What is the nature and the temperament of his kingdom? Christ is a king who conquers. How does he conquer? By self-denial. Being in control of himself at all times. Not lashing out after being falsely accused. I don't think there's anybody in the history of the world who is more falsely accused than Christ. How else does he conquer the world? By suffering for the sins of others. By loving as he took our place on the cross. And by serving as he washed his disciples' feet. There is no other kingdom, nor has there ever been a kingdom like the kingdom of Christ. The meek truly do inherit the earth. We have to follow Christ's example. I'll finish with Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you in closing with this message, Lord, just to take to heart all the times in the past that we have failed you in this matter. And Lord, to realize that there is still grace, that grace is still there to forgive us of every one of these sins. Lord, we pray as we go through life and we continue to face trials and tribulations and as we face the anxiety and the frustrations that come about by walking in their Christian life, that we keep our hearts, that we guard our hearts, not only as an external witness on how we're acting, but more importantly, Lord, internally on how we keep our hearts. Lord, to be able to forgive as Christ forgave on the cross. Lord, to be able to keep our emotions intact like Moses did when he faced his family. To be able to go through life, Lord, and to be able to control ourselves in a manner that is meek, that is gentle, and that is humble, that is not reactionary. Lord, these things don't come overnight. It takes time. But just to pray, to make a mental note of every time that we slip in this area, 
that there is room for improvement and that we need to improve. We cannot do it on our own, only by the Holy Spirit who's daily transforming us to your image. So we pray, pray, Lord, to keep our hearts, keep our minds right, keep our emotions at check, and that we may glorify and honor you in everything that we do. Asking all of this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.